Matthew chapter 7. And let's get your Bible open. We're going to pray for just a, a little bit. And then we can get into the message that we have for us today. So we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 7. And before we get into the message, let's pray together. Father, we want to pray, as listed in the bulletin, we want to pray for the leadership of this church, and the leadership of this, this city and this state, and of the federal government. Father, there is a ton going on, and a whole lot of it is not honoring. But nevertheless, we are called upon to be good citizens and to vote, and so we, we thank you for the privilege of doing that, and for those officials that have the virus, we pray that you would give them a speedy recovery, and I don't care which party they're from, that you would allow them to be healed up quickly and be able to take up their tasks again. And Father, I just thank you for the return that was broadcast on the TV of praying for this nation, for this world, for two hours. Father, what a blessing it is to see that there are people of faith out there that are willing to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ boldly and with conviction and with great optimism. Father, we want to have some of that here as well, that we want to be boldly become before the throne of grace, that we can obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And we are a needy people. Father, we had asked for the, the Lane family, whether it's Pauline or Mike or Brian, that you would be with each one of them and what they stand in need of. We have Brian that needs a transplant and he's waiting day by day. And Pauline, as she declines, that you would give her a peace that passes all understanding. And for Mike, that he would have the strength as a caregiver to continue on, knowing that that's a tall order and that it, it just wears a person out to be a caregiver week in and week out. We pray too for Barrett Mitchell that the surgery that he's had, that he would recover, and the family, if they're not home already, that they would be able to get back home. They'd be able to take up their tasks in familiar places, in their own home, in their own neighborhood. They'd be able to, to watch that little guy just grow up healthy and strong. For the Marston family, we pray that uh, she would have comfort and less pain. Father, you know what she needs, and we ask that you would provide it for her. And for Charles and Mike Hoagland, we haven't seen them for a long time. So we ask that your hand would be upon them, knowing that they have medical issues and challenges that they face each day. Father, we care about that family. We don't see much of them, but we know that you are very mindful of their needs and we ask that you'd provide for them. Father, we pray for Jenny and Fred as they are on a vacation for a couple weeks, that you give them traveling mercies, that it would be relaxing, that they could see things and enjoy this world that you have created. Father, I am grateful that I'm back behind the podium, that you have restored me, and sure, we have some medical things that they got to sort through, but you have been good, and I am grateful for medicine, for doctors. They can get a person back to, to health again with your blessing. So, Father, we are want to be a grateful people where we come before you, and we would thank you for all that you have done week in and week out. And as this message goes out, may it be edifying to those that hear, and may it bring glory and honor to you, our Savior, in Christ's name. Amen. If you'd look in the, the back of your bulletin, as is my custom, I have a, an outline back there, and we're going to be kind of go through that. And 
without realizing it, when you go through the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm going to give you a, a, a bunch of different quotes, without realizing it, there are many statements that we use occasionally that come from the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, they're so, so familiar to us that they're kind of like a motto in our mind. Here's a sampling of some of the things that you will hear, whether you say them or, or other people say them, is, let your light shine, Sermon on the Mount. In fact, all these are Sermon on the Mount. Every jot and tittle, turn the other cheek, or where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Another one is you cannot serve both God and mammon, or both God and money. Oh, you, you of little faith. The one that we're going to talk about today is judge not, lest you be judged. And uh, another one, don't cast your pearls before swine. We've heard people say that before. And finally, there's one more, seek and you will find. That's all in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, in the Christian life, if in the past, the past weeks ago, we talked about that section on worry, and I combined it with fear, worrying, and anxiety, for, for many people, uh, worry is their favorite pet sin. They kind of nurture it along. But if that is a pet sin, judging for some Christians is their favorite pastime. Worry represents a lack of faith and trust in God, but judging flows from a heart that does not love and is not accepting of others. So the first question that you'll see in your outline is this, are Christians allowed to judge? Well, I'll tell you what, in my years of ministry and even before, probably one of the most common phrases I have heard is they'll say like, well, you know, so-and-so died, and, mm, well, I, you know, I don't, I don't know what happened, but I, I don't want to do judge. Or you'll have somebody that, that isn't in church, you know, and they haven't been in church, you know, and I'm not sure what they're doing. But, I don't want to judge. I have heard that so many times. And today it just happens that our passage brings us up, and we're going to talk about it head on. We're going we're gonna to bring it out. For, for many believers, they, they, they go, I thought we as Christians were not supposed to judge. And then if, if somebody even says something that even smells like judging, you can get the response, who do you think you are to judge me? We can get that one. Many believers and unbelievers are only too familiar with this particular passage in Matthew 7. For many believers, it's embedded in their minds that we are not, to judge. Now, I'm going to be teaching something today a little bit different than what I've just talked about. There is an arena where we are to judge, but I'm going to put it to you this way. Should I or someone else claim that indeed we must judge, then you should be, as the book of Acts says, good Bereans. <clears throat> and a Berean was one who searched out the scriptures to see if there was false doctrine. So if I or someone else talks about something and you, your, your red flag goes up and you go, hmm, I'm not so sure about that, you need to be a good Berean. And it says in Acts 17, now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, 
For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. That was a Berean. And occasionally you'll drive, whether in the Seattle area or Portland or you know, some bigger city, and you'll see on the front of a church, the Berean church. That's what they're getting at, is they are likening themselves to the Bereans who studied the scriptures to see what it says. A person once said that if the devil is able to destroy a Christian's witness, there's two ways, at least two ways the devil can do that. A witness can be destroyed, be destroyed by a person being apathetic, or a person's witness can be at least tarnished by being a fanatic. You go, well, how did you arrive at that since we are talking about the Sermon on the Mount? Well, if you're on, if you're on a, a Matthew chapter 7, what I'm going to do is, is there is some comparing going on, and I'm going to just give a real, a really short little uh, background on this. Apathetic is a person whose heart is set on gathering stuff. If you can look in Matthew chapter 6 at 19, it says, treasures in heaven. If you, you can become apathetic if your, what do we say it, your goal in life is to accumulate stuff. Your, your focal point will not be God it will be accumulating treasures. And the person who is a, a worrier, they also are not centered on God. They're, they're centered more on what is the concern of the day. So that can make a person apathetic. They're apathetic because they're either looking for treasures or they're worried about keeping their treasures. You can become zealous or, or have great zeal if you are a judge of others. You can become a sharp critic. So what we have seen in Matthew 6, before we got up to today, and if you, you can just flip there to Matthew, Matthew 6, and I'm just going to do this really briefly, is what Jesus has done a lot of is comparing what the Pharisees are doing with what Jesus teaches. There's a comparing going on. The Pharisees are acting this way, Jesus says, no, 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 you need to act this way. And there's three distinct areas. It was in the area of giving, prayer, and fasting. And all the Pharisees were doing their giving or their praying or their fasting to be seen by other men, and Jesus says, you have your reward in full. Then he would say, no, this is how I want you to give. You give secretly. Or this is how I want you to pray. And he gave us the example of the Lord's Prayer. He says, or this is how I want you to fast. I don't want you to go around with a long face and have everybody see how suffering and what a martyr you are. He tells, so he's comparing what the Pharisees did with what he wants you to do. Now we get to the passage for today. He is also doing more comparing. He says, this is what the Pharisees are doing. This is what I'm telling you you should do. So, we get into this whole issue of judging. It says, do not judge, and the word judge means render a verdict. Do not render a verdict. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. 
For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This statement is a form of the, what do we call, reaping, sowing principle. Okay? It is repeated again in chapter 7, verse 12. It says, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets are listed in Matthew and Mark. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And a second like unto it is this, love your neighbor as yourself. That was a summary of the law and the prophets. So, when you have this sowing, reaping principle, it is critical to understand this. Jesus' concern is not that we are judging, but that when we judge, we judge as Jesus did, not as the Pharisees. The Pharisees judged from a position of self-righteousness, pride, and therefore they would be judged by that level of self-righteousness. So the Pharisees are going, we do things right, we're very learned, you're not. Okay, then that is how they're going to be judged, and Jesus was extremely severe with them. Jesus judged them, and we look in other passages, we look in Philippians, it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility consider others more important than yourself. Each of you should look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. So we don't judge in that way. There is another passage in Galatians 6. It says, Brother, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore them gently. But watch yourself, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. And in the first first sentence that I said in Galatians, it said, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. The phrase is, in antiquity, which means a long, long time ago. During the time of Jesus, that word restore meant setting a broken bone. So you do it very carefully, you do it very gently. But here's the deal, you would do it. Okay, it says restore a person. Yes, you, it isn't like, ooh, I don't want to do it. You know, I don't want to judge. I'll just, I'll just back off. No, no, no. You do it gently. You do it carefully. <clears throat> but I want to go back, and I want to ask the question clearly one more time. Are Christians allowed to judge? That's the question. Yes, they are but from a position of love and humility rather than hypocritical pride and self-righteousness. It is not a blanket statement against all uncritical thinking. This, this verse, do not judge or you too will be judged, it's not a blanket statement that we're just to shut our brain off and not ever make a judgment because we don't want to judge. It doesn't mean that at all. There is a righteous kind of judgment we are supposed to exercise with careful discernment. Now, when we're, when we're talking about this, oftentimes 
it's going to be like a coin. There's this side of the coin balanced by this side of the coin. And then we'll go on to a different subject with it. And then we go up. It's this side of the coin balanced with this side of the coin. Well, on the one side of the coin here, you have sensorious. There's your word for the day. It's sensor. Sensorious judgment. And censoring type of judgment means to be severely critical of someone. That's what censorious means, be severely critical of someone. On the one hand, we are not to be censorious. We are not to be hypocritical. We are not to be self-righteous. We are not to make unfair judgments. That's on the one side. On the other hand, Jesus did not mean for us to be naive and lack discernment. That's on this side of the coin. And you could say, rightly, how do you know that, Pastor? I'll show you how I know that. If you could take your Bible, I'm just going to show you a couple right where we're at. Matthew 7, verse 15. Matthew 7, verse 15 says, watch out for false prophets. Well, if we lack discernment, if we're naive, how in the world are we going to, how are we, we going to see a false prophet? How are we going to know a false teacher? Well, you have to be discerning. You have to make a judgment. It says here, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. So what are we supposed to look for? By their fruit you will recognize them. Go to verse 20. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. It tells you we are to be discerning we absolutely now you're discerning with care as restoring a person whose bone is broke you do it gently carefully with discernment but you do it you do the work so it goes on there's other one uh, John 7 it says stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment doesn't that seem to conflict with Matthew 7, verse 1? Seems to, unless you put it on the right context of not to be hypocritical, self-righteous judging. You are to use right judgments that Jesus gave us and how we should do that. There's other ones in 1 John. It says, test the spirits to see whether they are from God. That means we are to have observation, weighing out the facts drawing conclusions. We are to exercise church discipline if necessary. Well, how can we exercise church discipline? We're actually judging someone. Yes, we are. By what we see, we are able to judge someone. And you do it carefully, thoughtfully, with discernment and patience. But you do it. Other ones. Jesus did not mean for us to support false teachers blindly or to neglect our responsibility to call out genuine deception or wickedness when we see it. In 1 Corinthians 5, the church has a responsibility to, and the word is, judge a so-called brother or sister who claims the name of Christ but is clearly engaged in unrepentant and ongoing sin. The church is called upon to judge 
We are called upon to do it. And I want to sum this up by, by saying the calm, careful, corporate discipline of a local church is very different from the labeling and judging that occurs between individuals who are fueled by hypocritical pride. You have a board who is calm, careful, and corporate. That is far different than being hypocritical and prideful. I hope you see the difference on that. The next one in the outline is, when is it wrong to judge others? Well, it is wrong for us to judge the contents of someone's heart. We don't know. We don't know their motives. A good verse in this is 1 Samuel 16. It says, remember when Samuel was, was trying to find David and all the brothers came by and says, no, it's not him, no, it's not him, no, it's not him. And it says, God, God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We do not know the contents of the heart. Further, further, it is wrong to judge others by judging the contents of their heart because none of us are completely objective. None of us. We, we all have a bias. We all make judgments with, with our limited perspective and little information. And finally, Jesus condemned judging others judgmentally in a negative or a haughty way. We are to assess others without a suspicious spirit. So, Jesus is calling out the Pharisees because they are hunting, the Pharisees are looking at the people, and they're hunting for faults, mistakes, and imperfections. And if we as individuals or as a church, if you and I hunt for faults, mistakes, and imperfections, you know what? We'll find them. We will find them. That's not the point. It is not to go on a mission and try and find faults, because you absolutely will find faults. What you're doing is, you're, is when you find faults, how do you handle it? Is it carefully, tenderly, with compassion, knowing that it's one sinner and another that are working together? We're trying to sort through this. It is not a condemning attitude. Now, looking on, you see there in verse 2, it says, For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And I put in the outline, it says, What goes around comes around. We've all heard of that expression. And if you, if you want to judge someone with no grace, if you want to point an accusatory finger or if you want to apply unjust standards, then guess what? Probably one day, those very elements will apply to you. And they'll say, well, this is how you treat others. This is how we're going to treat you. We're going to use the same standard that you use on other people. So what goes around comes around. And Jesus uses a brilliant and kind of a funny illustration to 
project this onto the people in kind of story form. And that's where I got the name of the, the message title. It says, Motes, Beams, and Hypocrites. Motes is a Greek word used for a speck of sawdust or a piece of chaff. It's a tiny little piece of dried wood that gets in your eye, and it's just a little bit of irritation. A beam, in the same context, it is a, it is a pillar, a rafter, a joist, or a log meant to hold up a whole wall. I mean, it's just great, big, huge chunk. And Jesus purposefully and intentionally uses exaggeration to make a point. And he's, he's saying, how can... Well, let's read it and see what it says. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, a moat, and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye or the beam? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. How can a person with a beam sticking out of their eye help take a tiny piece of sawdust out of somebody else's eye? Well, obviously you can't. That's the whole point of the message. It can't be done. So this is what I'm going I'm to summarize and encapsulate what I've talked about in the first five verses of chapter 7. Jesus did not tell us we should just mind our own business when we see a blind spot in somebody else's life. Jesus did not say, live and let live. Or, who am I to judge? Jesus did not say that. Rather, he acknowledged the rightness of wanting to help a brother or sister overcome a struggle by being loving, careful, and authentic. But he did do it. Okay? And finally in verse 6. Finally in verse 6 it says, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw out your pearls to pigs. If you do, they will trample them under feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. i got to confess as a kid, and even up until recently I go, I have no idea what they're talking about there. It sounds bad. And you're probably not supposed to do it, but I've never in my life thought about taking some pearls and throw it, throw it into pigs, and I'm not sure I have anything in my house that's sacred that I want to give to dogs, so I just kind of let it go and just... But here's the deal. This is what they're talking about here, is in verses 1 through 5, Jesus, remember I told you about the coin? He's talking about the one side of the coin, and then he goes over here and talks about the other side of the coin. Verses 1 through 5 are this side of the coin. Don't be hypocritical, prideful, haughty in your assessment of other people. Be kind, considerate, loving, gentle, honest, honest. Okay, that's what we have over here. Now Jesus is going 180 degrees, and he's going, don't take things that are spiritually sacred, things that are spiritually uh, holy, and just give them to somebody. I'll give you an example. This principle was, was what Jesus used when he went to various cities, and it says he did not do very many miracles. Matthew 13, it says, Now he did not do many mighty works there 
because of their unbelief. The people didn't want it. They were not willing to listen to him. They weren't ready for it. And Jesus says, I'm going to take some of those sacred or holy things, and I'm just going to hold those back. And I'm not going to, in essence, give what is sacred to dogs or throw pearls before swine. I'm just going to, I'm just going to hold back. Now that is another element of judging, is you and I need to know who metaphorically the dogs are in society, and in Revelations, dogs are referred to as the wicked or the unbeliever. That's, that's generally, it's not always, but generally those two are kind of coupled together is they're believers and wicked. We need to have discernment and judge who are the dogs. Who are those people that they want nothing to do with your God? They want nothing to do with prayer or the things of the Bible. They're just fine. Leave me alone. Then on the other hand, pigs were an abomination to the Jews. In fact, a good Jew wouldn't even say the word pig. They would call it, quote, the abomination. That's how they would describe it. And, but they had to make a judgment call on who fit that description. So they did have to judge. God didn't want them to be naive and lacking of discernment. So we, we should be wise and prudent about people we bless with spiritual things. God's gifts are not to be laid open to abuse and his truths subjected to mockery. We just decline to offer it if that is the case. That takes discernment, okay? That is all I have on this particular passage, but it is, it is um, Communion Sunday. So I have been trying to kind of advance the story of Jesus as we kind of, I'm, I'm shifting gears here. We're going to be talking now about a whole different arena. I'm still going to be in Matthew because I want to read a passage out of Matthew, but that's going to be here in just, in just a little bit, is what has happened up until now is Jesus has always been able to confound those who opposed him. When the disciples were with Jesus, every time Jesus kind of had, had a conflict with somebody, he either walked away, he silenced the people, usually the Pharisees, the scribes, teachers of the law, or he just walked away. But the disciples always saw Jesus in the role of a victor, never in the role of a victim, not ever. And the passage that I'm going to be reading now, we have done communion enough, we've kind of moved along, and we're to this particular point in the, in the story with the, with the Lord's Supper and the arrest and the crucifixion. We're up to this particular point, and uh, everything seems... To go wrong. It had been going right, but everything seems to be going wrong. A mob arrived to arrest Jesus. Judas unexpectedly betrays Jesus with a kiss. Peter tries to intervene. He, he whacks a, a servant's ear off and he gets really hammered by Jesus. He sternly tells him not to do that. The disciples flee in fear. And yet the overarching reality in the biblical account is that Jesus was calm, sovereign, and uncompromising. 
I say that as an introduction to the Lord's Supper. And to link that with the passage we talked about today, here's a summary of a few, few of the principles regarding judging. Jesus rightly judged the disciples. He said, you're all going to desert me. And he goes, no, 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 we won't. You actually will. You actually will. You're, they're going to they're gonna crucify the Son of Man. No, no, they, they won't do it. Yeah, they will. He judged rightly. So, I want to summarize. We're moving into the communion passage, but I want to tie up a couple loose ends with the judgment. Is In your bulletin, you'll see, we are not to judge men's motives, their attitudes, or their heart. We are not to do that. And one, one particular passage I want to read that is very clear is in Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. So the summary of today's message is we are not to judge motives, attitudes, or the heart. We are not to judge according to men's standards. We are not to judge according to by, by which we are unwilling to be judged ourselves. And finally, we are not to judge when we have a log in our eye. But we are to judge only after humbling ourselves, after being correctly and rightly judging according to God's standards that he puts in here. We are to judge according to God's standards and outward behavior alone which is a compilation of actions and speech. So we can make a judgment. I, could, I, I have said it numerous times. So-and-so says that they're a Christian. They say that their tree, the fruit that they're bearing, is apples. But man, they look like peaches to me. That is making a right judgment. I'm looking at the exterior. They say they're having fruit that is, that is really good, and I go... That's what they say, but this is what I see. They're not apples. They look like something else. I will not and have not, hopefully never will, judge the eternal destiny of a person's soul. That is not my arena. But I can say, you know, they claim to be a Christian, but frankly, I didn't see it. I didn't see it. So oh, you can't judge. Yes, I can. I can make discernments on what I see from the exterior. There, as, as it says, their actions and their speech. I can make a judgment. Can't go much further than that, but I can say this is what they claim. Didn't look like it to me. And I leave it there. Now we're going to go into the into communion passage. And I'm going to be reading out of Matthew 26, starting at verse 47. And I'm going to be stopping every so often and kind of making a comment. While he was still speaking, and the comment that needs to be made is, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He has prayed three times. So what has happened, it was about, sort of, kind of, they're not certain. They know it was evening time when Jesus went with his disciples to the upper room. Six o'clock-ish maybe 7 o'clock-ish, something like that. They went in there, and Jesus had some teaching. 
He washed their feet. He announced who would be the, the betrayer. Because Judas says, oh, Rabbi, he says, it's not I, is it? He says, you have said it yourself. And Judas took the bread, and by looking at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can put this all together, Judas took the bread, and then he left them. And then Jesus had, had communion, or the Last Supper, with the remaining disciples, and he had what was called the High Priestly Prayer, you see in John, where he prayed for a host of things, including you and I and the disciples. So we see, we see a host of things that are happening. But you'll see it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It says, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, and those three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each deliberately stress the status of Judas as one of the twelve to accent, to highlight the shock and the betrayal they all felt when he turned out to be a traitor. So we'll, and I'll read the passage a little bit more here in a minute. But Judas is in the upper room. They're having the Last Supper. Like I said, Jesus called him out. He took the bread and he left. And it's believed he went straight to the high priests. So let's say it's 7 or 8 o'clock at night, something like that. Somewhere in there, give, give or take. Probably could have been even a little bit later. He goes straight to the high priests. And we see in the, in the message, or in the, in the passage of Matthew 26, it says... While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. They were able, they being the chief priests and the elders, were able to get what was called a large crowd together in a matter of hours. This was a combination of thugs who had clubs and mixed with some temple guards. It was called, in some places, a cohort. A cohort is the description of a military unit. It was about 600 soldiers. They don't believe it was that many, but it could easily have been two or 300 soldiers that came to arrest Jesus. Imagine they got them together really fast. And that shows the determination of the religious rulers to get rid of Jesus. Passover always fell on a full moon. So it was a brighter night than normal, but in Gethsemane, which is an olive grove, it would barely provide enough light to make dim shadows in the darkness. So it would have been a full moon, always would be a full moon, but it probably was still somewhat dark inside the Garden of Gethsemane and the question is asked, why did Judas betray Jesus with a kiss? Well, Judas may have feared that one of the disciples would surrender to the authorities in Jesus' place, pretending to be him in order to spare his life. And you say, well, why, why would Judas feel that way? Because if you look just in the same chapter, I'm looking at Matthew 26, I started at verse 47. If you go to verse 35, it says, But Peter declared, even if, you have to die, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same thing. So Judas very easily could have thought, hmm, if we don't have a prearranged signal, one of the other disciples could step forward, take the place of Jesus, and Jesus would escape. So after all, 
Judas had heard all of the disciples say that they would be willing to die for him. Therefore, a prearranged signal was set up. Possibly. Okay? In the Jewish culture, a kiss was a sign of respect and homage as well as affection. Slaves kissed the feet of their masters as a sign of respect. Disciples sometimes kissed the hem of their teacher's garments as a token of reverence and deep devotion. Kissing someone's hand was a gesture of respect and honor, but a kiss on the face, especially with an embrace, signified personal friendship and affection reserved for the closest of friends. Now, you won't get this out of the English uh, rendering of this passage, but you do out of the Greek. In verse 48, it goes, Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them, The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. And going at once to Jesus, Judas says, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. You would never get it out of the English rendering. But the word kissed in this passage is the Greek word to kiss earnestly, intensively, and repeatedly. It is the same word that is used in Luke chapter 7 with the woman in the Pharisee's house who anointed the feet of Jesus with fragrant oil and wiped them with her hair and it says, and repeatedly kiss his feet. It's the same word for kissed. Judas is pretending the utmost affection, making his act even more despicable. It wasn't a peck on the cheek. It was a sign of utmost loyalty and devotion, meaning he was betraying him with a kiss. And Jesus replied, friend, do what you have come to do. That word friend is not the word friend used up in the upper room where Jesus says, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you, but no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friend. Not that word. The friend in this, in this particular passage is a word meaning comrade or companion. And the reason I bring that up, could not Jesus rightly have judged and said Judas was a villain or an infidel, a traitor or a fool? Could he have not said a host of other things besides saying, comrade, do what you came to do? Jesus addressed Judas as a comrade, called him by his name, and gently asked questions that if you had even a soft spot in your heart, you would have turned. But Judas was utterly and totally hardened. And what I, what I take away from this particular passage is not only the love and the care that Jesus had for the person that betrayed him, but to, to recognize that any one of us could become so depraved that we could... Peter says, I'll never deny you. He says, well, actually, before the rooster crows three times, today, you're going to deny me three times. All of us can fall away. 
every single one of us. But yet, our Lord allows us to come to the table and to partake and to remember. So, Bloomquist, come on up and lead us as you, you take of the elements, and then we'll take the other side as well, and then we'll partake together. Having heard another little chapter of the, the crucifixion of Jesus, I hope you can appreciate the patience that he showed with one who he said later it would be better if the betrayer had never been born. He was actually gentle with him, knowing Judas was the one that started it off and it would ultimately